Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see all the smiling faces. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, as you all know, today is Mother's Day. We want to recognize our moms. How many moms do we have here today? One, two, okay, that's too many to count. Everybody, all you moms stand up. I want to say a very special blessing upon you, uh, for you and your family. Thank you so much for all that you've given. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I, I didn't think my mom did much, you know, except for yell at me. It wasn't later till I became a, uh, a grown-up and had kids of my own. I says, oh, wow, mom, I, I love you, I love you. <laughs> Jeez, please forgive me, right? So uh, you moms have been through a lot. You guys have uh, done a lot. And some of you don't have your moms with you, and I just want to remember them as well. So I want to pray for you as well, those of you that don't have your moms with you today. And, uh, but Mother's Day is a day that we recognize moms. Now, moms should be recognized every day, amen? I mean, we should. And, and that's why they take one special day to do that, I don't know. I think every day should be Mom's Day. And uh, if you have your mom with you, call her, write her a letter, listen to her. You don't have to do what she says, but just listen. You know, don't argue with her. She really desires the best for you. Uh, don't be like me. Uh, you know, I really wish I had my mom to yell at me now. But uh, don't, don't be like that. Uh, you just listen to her. She loves you. She wants the best for you. She wants to do. And, and so she may sound like it's nice because it's you've heard it all your life. But call her. Encourage appreciate her. Amen? And children, you the, the, call your moms. <laughs> Make sure you do that, all right? But let me pray a very special prayer for you moms. Father in heaven, thank you again. For those moms that are here today with us, we thank you, God, for such a beautiful a bouquet of flowers that we have this morning here. And those that are missing, Lord, we, we pray for them as well. Those that aren't able to attend, I, I lift them up to you, Lord. And I thank you for, for just the, the visitation here. We, we know, Lord, that you have done some great things. And, and every mom, uh, they, they know, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are a lot of things that they wish they could do over again. But Father, even those things, we know that you've used them for good because they're called according to your purpose. So I pray, Lord, uh, forgiveness upon their life and that they remember that you have forgiven their sin, forgiven their guilt and their shame for those who have been called according to your purpose. And Lord, we know that you're going to continue to bless them even now. Use them as examples. Help us, help us to see and to learn from them and uh, as you continue to encourage them, Lord. So we pray this special blessing upon them and we pray you continue to use them and bless them in so many ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone says amen. amen. Now give your, these moms a big hand of applause. Amen. Thank you, guys. We have something very special for you after the service. So if you must leave, uh, just let us know. But we hopefully that uh, you can stay with us. Afterward, Okay, now let me have you do this. Let me have you open up your Bibles first and foremost to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to go back there. For those of you that are using the Pew Bibles, if you want to use one of those, turn to page 613. 613 is uh, the same Bible as the one I have here. And uh, that's Isaiah 53. Okay, and once you get there, put your bullets in there or your thumb or something because we're going to launch off to there from our passage that we have been going through. We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is on page 986, by the way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we're talking about Paul and his encouragement to the people in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the city where this church 
was planted by Paul. Now, just so you know, a little bit of background behind Thessalonica. Paul went there, spent a very short amount of time. He was run out of town. And so he was just wondering what happened to the city that he was able to preach the gospel to. And he comes to find out that they had received it and they received it with joy and they were growing. And not only were they growing and receiving it, but they were dispersing it out throughout the world. Everybody was hearing about the love for Jesus Christ from these people in Thessalonica. So the Thessalonians were a very peculiar type of people. They were, a, it's a model church in a sense that you want to plant, you want to send it out, and you want it to keep going and to, and to grow. And so Paul has been telling us a little bit about, you know, who he is and, and what, what he's uh, done there. And, and he's, he's reporting to them and letting them know that he's encouraging them and, and that he's heard some great news from them. And then in chapter 2, he says to them, for you know, you know yourselves. Okay, wait a minute, let me back up again. In chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, they didn't just come because they thought, okay, let's see what we can get out of these people. Let's see what we can do here. You know, it wasn't that type of a call. Like, there were a lot of people that were going around through the circuit and the cities, and, and they were hi hiring themselves, or they were letting themselves for hire. They would speak to you if you would only pay them. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't have to pay me. Matter of fact, I don't, need, I don't want anything from me. I just I want to give to you. I want to be a blessing, not a burden to you in this city. And he says, we didn't come to you in vain. Not, not because we wanted the attention. We didn't. As a matter of fact, less attention, better, as we'll find out later. But though we had already suffered and then been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. They were in another city called Philippi, and it's the letter that we understand and know as a letter to the Philippians. That letter was written to the people in Philippi by Paul from prison. And in Philippi, he had a lot of harassment. A lot of people didn't want to hear his message, didn't want him to get out of town. They followed him to Thessalonica, and that's what he means here by saying, and we're going to go over this a lot more in detail uh, in the coming weeks. And he says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, we get this conflict in the, what, what they went through through the book of Acts. In Acts 17, again, we'll go back over that. Because right now, what I want to focus on is this phrase that he uses that many of us sometimes we just kind of oversee or don't even really see how that is relevant. But it is very relevant. And he says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this opportunity to look into your gospel. This wasn't Paul's gospel. This isn't our gospel. This is your gospel. Good news. Good news that you had set in place years before Jesus Christ had even come to this earth. Years before the, the creation of the world. You have created this gospel from the foundations of the world and you chose those who would listen to this gospel and to hear it and respond to it from the foundations of the world. And so, Father, help us to get a grip and a, and a handle and an understanding on this gospel message that you have brought to us and uh, that, that has been there all these years. Help us to understand it and to read it and to see it and to see how it affects our life. Thank you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, last week we talked about the gospel, how Jesus Christ talked to these two men on the way to Emmaus in Luke, cha in Luke chapter 24, I believe, but in the last couple of chapters of Luke, He's talking to these men that are befuddled as to what just happened. Jesus Christ 
was crucified, and then they heard that there was a uh, resurrection. And so they're walking home to Emmaus, about seven miles, almost a three-hour walk. And, and on the way, they encounter this stranger, and the stranger asks them, what are you guys talking about? And he says, well, this man, you know, our teacher, our rabbi, you know, the, the one we thought was going to bring Israel the right, the, what, the right standing, you know, before God. And, and, and this stranger says to them, oh, ye of little faith. I mean, don't you understand the scriptures, the things that were written? And from that point forward, this stranger, who later on showed himself, was Jesus Christ. They didn't see him at first. But he says, he says that he went back all the way from Moses to the writings and to the prophets. And he went back and he, re- he read to them, or actually he recited to them, how the Christ was to suffer. After Jesus Christ resurrected and the, uh, the apostles were having a hard time trying to keep up with all the people that were coming to Christ, and they were, you know, they were actually, well, before that, uh, Peter, he, he got up and he, he gave his famous speech. 3,000 people were saved. And what he proclaimed was, just as it was written to us from our forefathers, it was already preordained for Christ, for the Christ to die. Remember, Christ is his title. That's not his name. It's not Jesus Christ, first and last name. It's Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. And the Christ was to die. They didn't know who it was going to be, but he had to suffer. That the Jews didn't want to accept it. And so he proclaimed that gospel. He proclaimed what Jesus Christ had done. And on his way to uh, Ethiopia, this Ethiopian was reading the scroll of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, he was reading it. Now, Philip went up to him by prompting of the Holy Spirit and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless somebody interprets it to me? And they were reading portion of the scripture that we're going to read right now in Isaiah. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. And the Ethiopian asked the right question to Philip, the question that you should be asking, who is this person talking about? Is he talking about himself or about somebody else? And so my point is that when the apostles were launched out, go into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When they sent them out, Jesus sent them out, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the the spiritual, the four spiritual laws. They didn't have the Roman road. They didn't have tracks. They didn't have any of that. All they had was the gospel of God. And so when they were preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, they weren't proclaiming the gospel as we know it today. Today, many of you have heard apparently what seems to be the gospel, or you're told this is the gospel. The gospel is not my personal testimony. My, the, the, my, the gospel can involve my testimony, but it, it's not my personal testimony. The gospel is not singing music. I mean, part of the gospel can be involved in that, but that's not the gospel. The gospel message is not going out and feeding the hungry or visiting those in prison or helping those that are in hospitals. Though that's what we should be doing, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not that God loves you and he has a perfect plan for you. Which is true, God does love you, and He has a purpose and a plan for you. But that is not the gospel. And I think that the gospel message has been watered down so much that we think anything that anyone says is the gospel. 
And, and so in order to get a handle on the gospel, we have to understand what the gospel is. First and foremost, the word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion. Evangelion is where we get our word evangelism or evangel or to evangelize. And evangelism or evangelion is a, a Greek word that we get the, uh, that, that means the good news. If you ever go to a funeral or celebration of life, there's usually somebody there that gives a eulogy gives some good report of the person that we're celebrating their life. And that eulogy comes from the same Greek word. We're giving you a good report, a good news, a good standing, something of this person's character. And so good news, excuse me, evangelism or the gospel is evangel or is a good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross. We know that. But I don't think we've grasped the importance and significance why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because if we did, we'd be out there sharing it even more so with more people. And before we can know the good news, you got to understand the bad news. Now, I'm going to share the bad news with you in just a little bit, but let's turn over now to Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, we start in 52 on page 613 of your pew Bibles. In Isaiah 60, 52, as I mentioned last week, and it start, when, when this portion was written, we really didn't get any verses and chapters until they started printing the Bible in the 1600s. And this was in order to get people to, to find their place in the Bible. So there wasn't chapters and there wasn't verses. And, and, but the chapters that are there and the verses that are there pretty much, you know, it, it, it cuts it up and puts it in, organ, uh, in an organized manner for us to be able to read it and find it. But unfortunately for this portion of Scripture... 52 verses 13 and on, all the way to the end of chapter 53, we consider it as Isaiah 53. And it is considered to be one piece, and you'll see why here in just a little bit. There's five stanzas, five sections of this, uh, this prophecy by Isaiah. Now, Isaiah wrote somewhere from, from 750 to, to maybe 700 years before Christ. This was all written. And when he wrote this, this was all written prior to any understanding of what a crucifixion was. Maybe 300 years before a crucifixion was even done in known history. And known history has told us that that's where the crucifixion came from. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. But in this portion of scripture, in my Bible, right above verse 13 in chapter 52, it says this. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. Now, that's not part of the Bible. That's just the, the editor's note giving us a little bit of indication of this is where it starts, this portion. But just to see that, he was pierced for our transgressions. For those of you that have been Christians for some time, or at least gone to church, or at least know about the crucifixion of Christ, you know that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. Now, there are many thoughts as to what type of cross was it? Was it an X? Was it just a T? Or was it an actual cross? And I, I, I want to say it's an actual cross because, well, they had to attack the title of Jesus, King of the Jews, above his head somewhere. So there needed to be some sort of a post up. And it, it couldn't be an, an X because, well, you know, and there's just all kinds of other reasons. Some people say it was just a tree. Peter called it a tree. Is it, wasn't it a tree? It must be a tree. That was just another wood for another word for wood. But bottom line, he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. You know this. His hands were pierced. His feet was pierced. His side was pierced. If you've spent some time with us, 
during Seder Passover, we have what's called the bread of affliction, the afikome. The, af the bread of affliction is a flat piece of bread with no yeast in it. It doesn't rise. It's like a tortilla, basically in a sense, uh, or, or tortilla, excuse me. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and what they do in order for it to cook right, they, they pierce it, they stab it so it can you know, cook through and, and be able to, to get all the heat inside it because it's not rising, so it has to warm up that way after they cook and they pull it out and it becomes a cracker or like a bread. And this bread of affliction, what they do is they stick it in this, this bag that uh, is called the Trinity bag or a unity bag. And this is what the Jewish people call it. And they stick it in the middle. They put it in the middle. And during their Passover meal, they take that unity bag, that bread of affliction, that one in the center, and they break it. And they break it and they said, and, and they hide part of it and they put the rest of it away. Later on in the Lord's Supper, what Jesus is having the Passover meal, that's the bread that he takes and he says, this is my body. It's not just some arbitrary piece of bread. He didn't just go to the store and buy some loaf of bread. Oh, by the way, guys, here, let me just park this out to you guys. No, it was intentionally placed there by God centuries earlier. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ fulfilled it that it became very relevant to the Christians of that day. Let me read the whole passage to you. We'll come back and we'll, we'll do some commentary on it and uh, we'll expound on it just a little bit more. And there's so much information here. I'm not going to be able to do all of it, uh, but I'm just going to give you the, the pieces of it that I think are relevant to us because this is the gospel of God. Now this, with everything else, there are a lot of references to Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Psalm 22 is a very good reference. If you want to write that down on your outlines, read Psalm 22. Again, he was pierced, he was hung on the cross, and how they, the evildoers, they, they, they circled him like dogs, and they cast lots for his clothing. I mean, it, it's just like if the guy, the, the writer of the, the psalm is, is standing there and watching all this unfold as he writes it down 800 years before the death, the birth of Christ. But here in Isaiah 50, 52, verse 13, it says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And it's interesting in how Isaiah starts off with you know, the exaltation of Christ. And notice the, the first person, second person, uh, and, and the, the, the future and, and the past uh, wording that he uses. He says, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Now, right away in verse 14, as many were astonished. Here's the key point here, beloved. Isaiah is looking to the future. Jesus Christ has not yet been high and lifted up. That the name of Jesus Christ, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess has not happened but it will. And so Isaiah is looking not only at a distant future, but he's looking at the end of time and watching the servant of God. They don't know his name. They call him Messiah. They don't know it's Jesus, but he's the servant. And Isaiah has been talking about the suffering servant throughout this whole book. In 64 chapters, he's talking about the suffering servant, the suffering servant. And here is what the suffering servant is going to do. First and foremost, he's going to be high and lifted up. In the future, he's going to be high and lifted up. And, and so he's saying he shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. Now, now look at this throughout the whole, the whole reading of this. 
Look at all the negative things that happen to this servant. Look at how it just, it, it just, it jumps, it should jump out at you. And if you want, you can circle them. I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to make them, I'll make a point. I'm going to pull them out for you. In verse 14, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was marred. That's one word, beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of children. In other words, he was just beat up to the pulp. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom was the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, that's another word, and rejected, another word, by, by men. A man of sorrows, it's another word. He was acquainted with grief, another word. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised again. And he was esteemed, and we esteemed him not, one more time. And surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, and he was pierced. There's another one for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, that's another one, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, another one, and he was afflicted again. And he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression, another word, and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he put him to grief. When, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, he, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, I, I, I know we've already gone to prayer for your word, but, but Lord, this, this portion of scripture is just so humbling. And Lord, I, I pray that we can just, just get a grasp just a glimpse of the depths of this chapter. There is so much here that when we start taking it apart, even bit by bit, we start to see how it was that your son, Jesus Christ, fulfilled every one of these prophecies that was written about our suffering Savior, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our mighty King that died for me. That is amazing love. 
So, Father, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Number one in your outlines. The astonishing servant. The astonishing servant. Behold, he says, Isaiah, behold. This is like, hey, I'm taking you guys on a different trip now. I'm going a different direction. I want you to see something. Behold, it was the word that was used from the angels. Behold, it, it, it catches you off guard. It's like, whoa, it wakes you up. It's like if you're asleep and they throw a pail of water on your face, behold, what? You know, and it was that kind of, this is that kind of statement that is said for us. Well, we see it a lot in the, in the Bible, in the Old, Old Testament, in the Old Writings. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He didn't act by himself, nothing. He didn't do anything of himself. He said, everything I do, I do because the Father tells me what to do. I don't do anything on my own accord. I only do what my Father has sent me to do. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Isaiah is seeing this. He's, it's like someone, someone once said that if all the Bible was missing, if we didn't have the New Testament and we only had this, this would be sufficient to know that God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. And it is so just right there in your face when you compare it to Christ. Every one of these pieces that we're going to talk about, Christ fulfilled it. Jesus completed every single one of these and some. There are hundreds of other prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled, but the Jewish people can't see it. They won't see it. As a matter of fact, they are prohibited from seeing it. Every Sabbath on Saturday, they have what's called a reading, a reading from the, the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and they also have a reading from their writings, the, the Jewish literature that they have. And every, every year they go through the whole Old Testament and through the readings that they have. This portion of Scripture is, I don't know if it's intentionally omitted, but it's not in their readings. Going back and looking at all the readings that they have and looking at everything, it, it's not in there. And you have to ask the question, why would that be? Why is it? And, and, and you know, when a Jewish person that is familiar with Jesus Christ sees this for the very first time, they start to say, wow, I've never read that before. It's kind of like what happens to you when you read a portion of Scripture and all of a sudden it just jumps out at you. It's like, wow, I've never seen that before. Has that ever happened to you? All of a sudden, you're, or maybe, maybe it might be a verse that I've read and I've expounded on a little bit, and you say something like, wow, I've never seen that before. And when a person of Jewish heritage reads this for the first time where it's read to them, where they see it, they're like, wow, could I be wrong? And lot, right away, they go back into their, their modus, they go back to their, their, their right set, and they say, no, 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 okay, th this is prohibited. I cannot, cannot even think that this is true. Because they won't. They won't accept Messiah. And it's something that God had done already. He says, well, you don't want to accept them, then I won't let you accept them. He hardens their heart. You don't want to accept them, then I won't let you accept them. And he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. I've, I've kind of touched on that a little bit. That hasn't happened yet, and it's going to happen, and it's coming soon. Verse 14, as many uh, were astonished at you. Now, if, if you look back, and if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, 
You know, and I, and I don't mean to be uh, celebrating Mel Gibson or, you know, but, but the movie was a pretty accurate portrayal of what a crucifixion looked like. I mean, what they did to his body. How they, you know, a lot of people think that he got 39 lashes. You know, he was flogged is what the Bible says. And that's all it says. It doesn't describe what his body looked like. Didn't describe anything about him. But the, the way that Romans would flog was different than the way the Jewish people would give you lashes. Lashes and flogging are two different things. See, in the Jewish temple, they would give you 39, 40 minus 1 lashes to teach you a lesson, not to kill you. They have found that if you give 40 or more lashes, you can kill the person or at least maim him and never be able to do anything again. So they always cut back. They says, okay, you only get 39 because we want to teach you a lesson, but we don't want to kill you. And so in the Jewish synagogues, whenever somebody got in trouble, that's how they would do it. The Romans, on the other hand, they had perfected this to a T. They had, they had this thing called a, a flagrum. It was a piece of wood, probably about this big, and you know, it's, it's not nice and round. It had a good handle on it, and it had some strips of leather, about nine to twelve pieces of leather that had sharp bone and ball bearings or pieces of metal at the end of it. And remembering, if you, if just remembering the the passion of the Christ, how they started to whip him and whip him, and whip him. And at one point, it's like the, the claw got stuck on his side, and, and the, the guy goes, rip, and you can hear the flesh just rip off his back, and, and, and you can hear the, the cries of Jesus, ah, you know, the pain that he went through. The, the, his back was just so cut and sliced, and, 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 and to be honest with you, the movie does not give it justice. That's just a very theatrical Hollywood version. It was ugly, beloved. It was ugly. And, and not only did they flog him and such, again, history will tell you this, and before Mel Gibson's movie came out, when I was in college, I did a paper on the crucifixion of Christ. And I did a lot of the research, which kind of, same thing. I mean, I, I got to see it on what I read and what I, what I put down on paper. And, and, and it, was, it was that type of punishment that these Roman soldiers would do to the vilest offenders. And, and, and once they finished on one side, they would flip them over to the other side. And, uh, you know, in the movie, the, the commander comes out and says, Hey, what are you guys? We said just don't kill them. He's yelling in Latin or whatever. And they got, oh, well, you know. And you can see those, the, the guards, are, you know, they're just tired. They're just, okay, good, because I'm, I'm just tired of doing this. And after that, Christ couldn't get up. They had to drag him out. They had to drag him out, and they put him on a, on a stool, and, and the Bible account says that they made a crown of thorns, and they placed it on his head, and, and when they placed it on his head in the movie, you can see them putting it on with two sticks and two staffs, and, and as they crunched it down on his forehead, they hit him in the head, and the Bible says they hit him, they struck him hard, and they pulled his beard, and, and, and blood, and everything was just everywhere. This was the affliction that he took for you and me, beloved, and he did this. And he was so marred. And people were like, what? Is that even a man? What type of a bloody, what is that? Is the astonishment that Isaiah saw. Is the picture of the suffering servant. Is the body of this man that was beat to a pulp. His appearance was marred. Oh, I mean, it was brutally marred. Beyond human semblance. In other words, you couldn't even tell it was a human being. And his form beyond that of the 
children of mankind. It was like he was bent over, hunched back, crouched over, dragging his, you know, whatever, whatever he could, trying to get to the next step. Every step was a vital step in his life. Yet the Bible says that none of his bones were broken. And in verse 15, Isaiah goes into the future now. He shall, so shall he, sprinkle many nations. In other words, you know what? These are the nations. The nation of Israel was always the centerpiece of God, has always been. They are the people of Israel. But when Isaiah says it's not just for the people of Israel, many nations. That blood, he's going to sprinkle it and he's going to cover nations, Gentiles, you, me. Remember, there's the Jewish nation and then there's the Gentile nation. Jewish nation is all the Hebrews and everybody else. And all of us, regardless of what our background is, what our heritage is, we are all considered to be Gentiles. And that blood was sprinkled. And he goes on to say, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. All, you know how kings, kings have something to say every single day. They say all kinds of things, but when they see Christ high and lifted up, he shall be lifted up and he shall be sprinkling nations. Kings are going to stand there with their mouths wide open. Ah, what are we going to do now? We see the, the power and the honor and the glory that this man has, that this man has now proclaimed. For that which has not been told them, they see. Some of these people have never heard of Christ, but that doesn't excuse them. They will see. And that which they have not heard, now they understand. And there's repentance that's going to have to happen. When Jesus Christ returns, and before he returns, there is this, and we're going to be talking about that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. When we go back there, we're going to be talking about the rapture. The rapture takes place in chapter 4. And when we go back there, we're going to see that Jesus Christ doesn't come to the earth. He meets us in midair. And with the sound of the trumpet, those the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And those of us who are left behind, we're going to be caught up. Now, it is interesting because a lot of people tell me, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, you're right. It's true. The word caught up is. And the word caught up is the word for, uh, in, in Latin, is raptura or rapidly. They would be caught up. And so that's where we get the word rapture. And then I go and say, well, you know, the word biblioteca or what we call Bible is not in the Bible either. So are you going to say that that's not valid? Anyways, I digress. In the, in the, in the, during the time of the rapture, Jesus, we meet him in midair and he takes us with him to the Father in heaven. Now he's presenting his bride. If you know anything about a Jewish marriage, that's, that's what happens. They, they, they present the bride to the family. And they have this party. It can last days, uh, depending on how much money you have. Two, three, four, five days, you know. And it's all the presentation of the bride and her, her class, where she comes from, her, you know, her standing. And it's all about the bride. And it's beautiful. It's a party. It's a feast. And that's what we're going to be doing in heaven for seven years during the tribulation. We're going to be presented to the Father. This is why it's so important, beloved, for us to be holy and blameless and spotless. And if Jesus Christ has died on the cross for you, if this is what Christ did for you, then I, you, we owe Christ our devotion. We can't just run our own program. We just can't do our own thing. Because here's what the bad news is. God is going to punish the sinful. You live your life the way you want to live your life, 
God says he's going to give you more of that. And as a matter of fact, he's going to make it so that you don't hear his gospel. And this gospel message, this bad news, you, people say, ah, it's okay. I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to be partying there. I don't think Satan wants me there. He thinks I'm going to take over and, uh, you know, we're just going to have a good time. Oh, my friends are going to, no, it's not going to be a party, beloved. If you know anything about the wrath of God, it is vengeful. And the bad news is that if you've not yet committed your life to Christ and start to serve him, it's, that's the destination of all people. You cannot come to church in a box and have the pastor pray for you to get you into heaven. It doesn't happen that way. It's your commitment to Christ right now. See, that's the good news. The good news is you don't have to be perfect. You need to strive to be holy. You need to strive for perfection. You need to strive toward that. And we'll talk more about that during the chapter 4 when we get in there. Because that's what we're going to be doing, celebrating in heaven. Then we return with Christ back then. And at that return, you know, and, and during the, the tribulation, where there is no Christians, there's no church, there's going to be people here that believe that they were Christians. There's going to be a time, an opportunity for you to get saved. Or for, excuse me, I didn't mean you. I'm not, I mean for people to get saved. The gospel message is going to be proclaimed. There's going to be 144,000 evangelists. There's going to be an eagle flying through the sky. There's going to be two witnesses proclaiming it all over the place. And they're going to be proclaiming them. And God is still in the saving business. And he'll do it right to the end. And the harder that you harden your heart, the more God is going to harden it for you. The more that you say, you know what, I don't want this. And, and again, when we return, that's when all these kings are going to say, oh, wow, these guys were right. Bummer. He is Lord. It's not that they're going to pay homage to him. It's not that they're going to worship him. They are going to say he is Lord of Lords. He, and, and they're going to fall on their knees. Maybe not because of their desire to worship God, but they're going to fall on his knees uh, for, for understanding, man, I messed up. I messed up. And so when you, go to, when you understand what Jesus Christ did, why he did this, and what's going to happen, and for which uh, they had never seen, but now they understand. Number two, it's the rejected servant. It's the rejected servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the Lord of the arm, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, this is something that Isaiah talks about, uh, or as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus even says that in your outlines, you see in, verse, in John 12, verse 37, it says this, it says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Once again, John, Jesus, in the book of John, is quoting Isaiah. And he's quoting it because of their disbelief. And again, in verses 39 and 41 in your outlines, therefore, they could not believe. Because they did not believe, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see, what God does, what God does, he says, I, I want you to believe in my son. You know, eh, I'll do it later. Okay. Then your heart gets hardened. And then you come to a point where you cannot see. Not because you don't want, it's not because he doesn't want you to see. He, he makes it harder. And it's like putting those layers of leather over your heart. Now, beloved, I want you to know something. That that was me for the first 30 years of my life. And I, I, that leather was so thick, I just wouldn't believe it until one day the grace of God showed up and I said, I want it. And God just removed and broke my heart. The apostles, the apostle Paul, he was Saul, killing Christians, imprisoning them, taking away their possessions, fighting against this Christ. And his heart was so hardened, yet God broke his heart. <coughs> I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I'll just wait. You know, maybe, you know, you can't. You need to do it now. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. At the moment, I am growing what we call indeterminate tomatoes. In other words, they're going to continue growing. But in order for them to grow up, I have to pluck all the little suckers off the bottom. And those suckers, I just mulch them up and put them in the ground. And they're, they're irrelevant. Uh, even some fruit, some low-hanging fruit, I, I've cut it off. I says, no, I want my tomatoes to grow big. And I want them to, to, to be able to give fruit all year long. And, and I want them to be healthy and strong and build the stem. And so, and so the only way to do that is to cut off those shoots, those suckers, those, those, those branches that are coming out of the ground because those things are worthless to a, any type of a plant. They suck up the nutrients before it gets up into the tree. They hang low to the ground. They touch the ground. And they pick up all kinds of insects and diseases. And, and that's how Jesus was viewed. Let me read that again. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty. And so he, it was this, this young plant, this young sucker of a root that was coming out of the ground, taking up all the oxygen, taking up all the nutrients out of everything else. He was a nothing. And for, for many of the Jewish people, they couldn't believe Jesus because He's, he's, he's a nothing. Okay, well, so what? He comes from the line of David. You know, how do we know that? Now, that's what his mom says. You know, he, she says she had him miraculously. Yeah, right. We won't believe that. As a matter of fact, that's, that was Joseph's concern. Joseph said, I'm going to put her away quietly. I don't want to cause any shame on her because, okay, she's saying that the holy, yeah, okay, that, that's how it happened. And an angel of the Lord came to Joseph and says, no, don't do that. You raise that child. This is God's son. Okay, Lord, that's all I need. And he obediently served as the father. And even though he became Joseph's son, the, all the Pharisees said, but, but he's, a, he's a carpenter's son. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. I mean, look at him. He doesn't even have muscles. He's not as strong. He's not a beautiful man. And, you know, he, he has nothing. Remember, God looks at the inside where man sees the outside. 
And he was a nothing, a nobody. How can this nobody be Messiah? He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born to royalty. He wasn't born politically. He has no schooling, no education. How can he be anything? Once again, pointed to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and anguish with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. During the crucifixion, while people were watching him go, while people were watching him go up to the, the, the cross, people just turned their heads. They go, you know, okay. I mean, if he really is the son of God, he should get himself off of there. I mean, he helped others. He should be able to help himself. And Psalms points that out in Psalm 22. He says, you know, he can help. Well, let him help himself. Number three. The substituted servant. Here is the core of what Isaiah is trying to say. The substituted servant. Starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is called the substitutionary atonement. The substitutionary atonement, where you are to be the one to suffer all these things which pale. The wrath of God pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ went through. Jesus Christ went through this, and he did this for one night. For one night. If any of us find ourselves in that place, it'll be an eternity. And the eternity, he, he borne our griefs, he carries our sorrow. And these are all words that just that are trying to describe just the pain and the anguish and all that Jesus Christ was going through or the Christ it was to go through. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. In other words, he's got to be cursed. They hung him on a cross. They hung him on a tree. He's got to be uh, cursed and uh, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him, he brought us shalom. He brought us peace. The peace, the word peace here is not just the absence of war, but peace here is in shalom means completeness, wholeness. It means togetherness, peace. When they say peace, when they say shalom, that's what people are saying to you. I, I, I desire wholeness. I desire completeness. I desire that you receive all of God's blessings. This is the peace that God brought to us through Jesus Christ. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, I just want to stop here for a little bit. In this, in this portion of scripture, we take this verse, a lot of people take this verse out of context, and they claim this verse for healing, and they claim it for, for their back pain, their knee pain, uh, whatever the case may be. See, if you look at this in the context of what it's in, Isaiah is talking about the substitutionary atonement. He's talking about Jesus Christ going through all of this so that you wouldn't have to. 
And somehow, somewhere, somebody added, oh, yeah, and by the way, he'll take care of your knee pains, too. And he'll take care of your back pain, too. Oh, and he'll take care of your... You know, this healing that Jesus Christ has given to those who are His, this healing is deeper than any cancerous effect that you can have on your life. Now, I want you to know something. Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross so that my knees can be healed, so that my back can be healed, so that my cancer can be taken away. See, and people claim this, and they claim this, and many people somehow get healed, you know, and they, they claim it on God, and they go back out and live their sinful life as before. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? Why would God want to heal somebody that is disobedient and still going to continue on in their life? I mean, yes, you can name it and claim it. People say that all the time, but that's not what this verse is talking about. You know, if God wants to heal somebody, He'll heal somebody. If He doesn't, He doesn't. Now, there's a church that goes around saying, you know, it's not a matter if, if it's God's will. The moment you ask if then you've already lost. Because this verse is telling you that you are healed. It was taken to the cross. No, beloved. The healing that we're talking about here is the sin that is attached to the soul. That God heals you from that sin. And that sin is eradicated, taken away, cut out. And it is placed in the deepest ocean. And he puts a no fishing sign up there. You can't go back there. It's separated as far as the east is to the west. It is far. Now, now get this right here. Um, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was Jesus' favorite term for us. Did you know that? He calls us sheep. You know, he calls us sheep. We're his flock. And, you know, before you get all googly and, oh, cute, I'm a cuddly little sheep. You know, oh, I'm his sheep. I'm his, I'm his favorite sheep. But, you know, before you go there, I don't know if you ever risen, uh, raised sheep. We had, we had I, I did when we were younger. I was in Fresno, Madero. And I just need you to know something. Sheep are stupid animals. <laughs> they are. Yeah, see, my daughter knows. They're, they're dumb. You, you know, they, they'll, they'll eat anything. You got to watch them. They'll eat garbage. Uh, you, you know, and, and it's just, you got, you got to continue to protect them. That's why there's always, if you ever see sheep out in the field somewhere, there's always a trailer out there watching over there. Don't, don't eat that. It moves them around from the weeds that are going to kill them, stuff that's bad for them. And there's always a shepherd with a staff and a, and a rod at the same time and oil and, you know, fixing sheep. He's, he's helping them. You, you know, as a matter of fact, this, this term right here, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Th- this turning that sheep do, sometimes when they get tired, they lay down. And because they're, you know, nice and cuddly and round and full of fur and they got these short little stumpy legs, they'll lay down. And sometimes they'll lay on this little crevice and all of a sudden they go whoop and they get up on their backs. And they'll struggle and struggle and struggle, and they won't be able to, and they'll get further on their back. And when a sheep turns on his back, that's the most dangerous position that a sheep can get into. 
Because now he's exposed to the elements. He's exposed to the birds. He's exposed to wildlife. He's exposed. And he's in a very dangerous situation. And all he can do is, man, man. And sheep are just looking at him saying, man, what happened to you? <laughs> I can't believe you did that. You're so stupid. Yeah, so are you. But anyways, you know, and, and this poor sheep, unless the shepherd goes and topples it over, it's going to stay there. It'll die. Eventually, because it's turned upside down, the gases in its stomach and its rumen will, will start to expand and, and, and it'll, it'll just, it'll blow up. If the heat, if it's hot enough in there, it'll, it'll last, he'll last maybe a couple of hours. If it's cold and rainy, he might last a couple of days. If a predator doesn't get him. Beloved, that is a picture of us as sheep that turn and go our separate ways. And we're kicking and scratching and trying to get through life and trying to make things work out because we're trying to do it on our own. And guess what happens? God is saying, you want to, God will say, you want to do it on your own? Go ahead. But you got a shepherd. You got a shepherd that wants to care for you. You got a shepherd that, that has died for you. You know, when sheep go off on their own way and they start, they continue doing that and they take off and they take off, you know, and they take off. And finally, what the shepherd does, you know, he hits it with the rod and he hits it again. And after the third time that it takes off, the shepherd grabs this sheep and he takes it and he snaps its leg. And he breaks it. And then he heals the wound. He puts a splint on it and he heals it and he puts it on his shoulder and he carries it all throughout the whole three weeks or whatever it takes for that sheep to get healed. Once that sheep gets healed, do you think that sheep's going to take off again? No. You know, what that, you know what that shepherd does? He puts a bell on that sheep to take care of the rest of the sheep, to teach them, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> How many of us need our leg broken? How many of you have had your leg broken? Put it that way. How many of us need the shepherd to tenderly just attend to our dysfunctional life? We've turned. And Isaiah is saying, you know, we, all of us, all of us, we have turned. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. And that one sheep that Jesus went after, that one, he, I mean, he loves the flock. He loves the sheep. And he will do anything to get you back into the flock. And some people say, why? Why is all this happening to me? Why? Why? I mean, I love God. I worship Him. I go to church. I tithe. I give. And I even serve. Why is this happening to me? Because God wants to help you. He wants to restore you. He wants to use you. He wants to keep you going strong. And a lot of times we are in sin, and we don't even realize why it's such a drastic measure going on in our life. It's just a little thing. It's not a big thing. In Isaiah number four, the silent shepherd, verses seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. You know, uh, having to shear sheep was a pretty simple task. All you had to do was just grab it and throw it on its back, you know, and then just start to shear, and it wouldn't say anything. But you had to do that once a year in order to, you know, make sure that it didn't get too big, too hot, and too bulky. And he, and, and he opened out, and they, they, they don't open their mouth. They're kind of very quiet. They're not like dogs when you're trying to clip their nails. You ever try to do that with a dog, you know? Or, or, or try to wash a cat? You can't wash a cat. I mean, it's not like that. Sheep are very docile. They really are. And by oppression and judgment, 
he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That verse there in verse 8 is, is a, a way of saying that he died. He was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah is looking at the suffering servant and he was silent. He didn't say anything and he accepted what God said needed to happen. I will do this. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he was stricken for, this trans, for the transgressions of my people. And, and, and uh, verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The, the wicked, the place where these crucified convicts would go, after they were left on the cross for days, the birds and the prey and all the animals would come. They would, they would be low enough for dogs to come up and chew their legs off. Birds of the, the air would come up and cut up, eat up all their flesh. After they were done with these, these criminals, they would put them up there and keep them there in order to make them as an example. Don't go against the Roman government because this could happen to you. And after they were done, they would take their bodies and they would throw them with the wicked in this place called Gehenna. Gehenna is another word for hell, and, and that's the word that we use. But Gehenna was a constant burning fire of sulfur where all the garbage went. And all the garbage that the people were throwing away, they'd throw it into this fire so it can smolder and go away, and that's where they would throw these bodies. That's where Jesus Christ should have ended up at. But Isaiah, God said through Isaiah, no, he's going to be counted with the rich man. And as you know, Joseph of Arimathea and, and uh, Nicodemus, they came and they got Jesus' body. And they buried him in a rich man's grave. And, you know, it was, it was a big waste because, you know, he only used it for three days. So, but he was silent. And the, last, the last number five is the exalted Savior, servant. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The New, New American Standard, I think, puts it better. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Till on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We sang that a little while ago. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ, and it pleased God. God was, and why? Why did it please God to cause His Son to suffer like that? We ask, why the cross? Why the crucifixion? Why such a cruel, vile death? Well, because that's what God said. Short answer, God said so. But that's the good news. He did that. Look at this verse, the last two verses in your outline. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the word that is used when you want to appease a deity. You want to do something to make peace with this God or gods or deity of some sort. See, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's the one that propitiated for us. He appeased God on our behalf because there's nothing in this whole universe that I can do to appease God. I can't give Him anything. And to think that by being good, you're going to make it to heaven. By thinking that you're going to do something to make it to heaven, it can't happen. 
The blood of Jesus Christ has propitiated the sin for those of you that are saved. And there's nothing you can do about that. You can't make it happen. God's love. And why? Well, once again, in this is love. Because he loved you first. The Bible says that we're enemies of God. And because we're enemies of God, we're under God's divine wrath. That's the bad news. The good news is that he loved you first. That he loved you first, so therefore he sent his son to die on the cross to be that appeasement, that propitiation. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Why? Because God loves you. That's why. And there's nothing you can do about that. He loves you, and he's given his love and his son for you. Now, my responsibility and your responsibility is to respond. It's to respond to that love. And don't leave this place the same. This love that he has for you has been from the very foundations of the world. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, that it talk, he, he says that, that uh, you have been predestined from the foundation of the world. That there's a time and place where you are dead in your trespasses. And by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself. It is a gift of God. And if you stand there with that knowledge of understanding that God has saved you, my response, your response needs to be, what do I do next, Lord? What do I do next? How do I serve you from this point forward? Let me ask you to stand. Because that's the question I want to leave you with. See, the good news is that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, it was prophesied that he would do this. He would do this and he would cause this to happen in the future. No one knew who this Messiah was. When Jesus came, they said, it can't be him. He's a nobody. He comes from nobody. He's a nothing burger. I mean, you know, not, and then look at the way he died. That can't be him. But that was all God's plan. And when you look at Isaiah 53, you look and you see that that needed to happen. This is why many of the people said, okay, I can see it now. And I pray that you can see it as well. My prayer is that you understand and you know how much God loves you. That you understand the, God, the love of God. And that you respond because of that love to you. And what he does is he makes a change in your heart. And our response is because of that change that he makes in your heart right now. He wakes you up. He opens your eyes. He helps you to see that your life, that you're living, is not pleasing to God. And so now I want to please God with all that I have and all that I am. Father in heaven, this is the good news. The good news is that we are, first of all, the bad news is that we are sinners. The bad news is that you're a holy God. The bad news is, is that we are offending you every time we sin. The bad news is that, that none of us are going to make it on our own. The bad news is, Lord, that we, need, that we need a Savior, and we can't do it on our own. The good news is that you became that Savior for us by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Father, thank you for that, that fresh reminder to remind us, Lord, in our life, should change and be different. 
And I pray, Father, that we can grow and develop even more so according to your purpose and your plan for us. So, Father, I want to thank you once again for giving us this promise and this seal that those who have responded to your call, that you will not only call us, but you'll also change us. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray that today can be a day of celebration as we celebrate with our moms and we celebrate with our grandmas and, and remember, thank you so much for their love for us and how they have given so much. And now in return, we ought to give back to them. So lead us this, this day as we celebrate, first and foremost, giving honor to you and also honoring our moms. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says... Amen and amen. I'll be up here for a moment if you'd like to come up, have a word of prayer. Please, uh, do we have somebody to, just, uh, to lead us over there? We're just going to go over there? Okay, oh yeah, you know what? And uh, I, I believe we have some uh, brunch. Let me pray for the food very quickly. So that way you guys can just get in there and eat and run. <laughs> Stick around as long as you can or as long as you want.